Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Do you feel uncomfortable in conflict with others? Do you experience fear and anxiety when dealing with tough situations? Most negotiation tactics and strategies assume you're already a master negotiator with nerves of steel. But that's the wrong starting place. In this episode, we discuss how you can get comfortable with having tough conversations and build the foundation to become a real master of negotiation using a simple and easy to apply framework. We get into how you can deal with tough situations and conflict from a place of poise, curiosity, and confidence with our returning guest, Kwame Christian. Do you need more time, time for work, time for thinking and reading? Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or 
If you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed how to deal with never feeling like you're enough showed you how to overcome the insidious trap of people-pleasing, looked at the most effective treatments for OCD, panic attacks, anxiety, and stress, discovered the dangers of toxic perfectionism and how it might be holding you back, told you why should is a dangerous word, and much more with our previous guest, Taylor Neuendorp. If you want to banish procrastination, people-pleasing, and anxiety from your life, listen to that episode. Now for our interview with Kwame. Today, we have another exciting guest back on the show, Kwame Christian. Kwame is a business lawyer and the director of the American Negotiation Institute, where he puts on workshops designed to make difficult conversations easier. As an attorney and mediator with a bachelor's of arts in psychology and a master's in public policy, as well as a law degree, Kwame brings a unique multidisciplinary approach to the topic of conflict management and negotiation. He also hosts the top negotiation podcast in the country, Negotiate Anything. Kwame, welcome back to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, we're excited to have you back on the show. Longtime listeners will definitely know that negotiation is a topic that I'm a huge fan of kind of digging deep on and, you know, one of the most popular kind of topics that we talk about on the show. And so there's definitely a lot of meat and a lot of things to kind of dig into. And you've been out to a lot of stuff since since you were last on the show. Absolutely. I, I would say the highlight since being on the show is having this celebrity named uh, Matt Bodner on my show at the Negotiate Anything podcast to share his knowledge on negotiation. So that was pretty cool. But since then, I, I've had a I've done a TED talk called Finding Confidence in Conflict, uh, where I introduced a new concept called Compassionate Curiosity and did did pretty well. And since then, it's taken me on this journey where more and more people were asking me to elaborate on that idea. And so it's leading to a book. So by the time this episode airs, the book will be out and it's called Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Find Confidence in Conflict. So let's dig into that, that kind of idea, confidence in conflict. You know, a lot of people... I think a, a huge majority of people probably actually sort of seek out to actively avoid and steer away from conflict, usually in their lives. Is that a healthy sort of habit or practice? Or, or should we be kind of embracing conflict or, or even seeking it out in some cases? It is something I see all the time. Is it healthy? No. But is it human? Yes. It's a defense mechanism. And what's interesting is before I did the TED Talk, as somebody who believes in evidence-based approaches to solving problems, I surveyed the audience. I asked my audience of the podcast, what is your biggest concern? What do you need help with? What would you like to hear? And for me as a lawyer, I, I'm a strategist. I'm a tactician. I really like getting into the nitty gritty. And I was really shocked to hear what people said. They said their biggest issues are first, they don't have confidence in these conversations. Secondly, they're experiencing a lot of fear and anxiety before and during the conversations. And lastly, when they're in the midst of the conversation, they feel as though they don't know what to say. And so that really forced me to change my approach and help people to feel more confident and address that foundational issue first. And I realized that in the past, I was essentially giving recipes to people who were afraid to get in the kitchen. And so it really forced me to change my approach and it's been helping people. And so now people are more confident and actually moving towards these conflicts because they're seeing it as an opportunity to get more of what they want, avoid things that they don't want, and strengthen the key relationships in their lives. 
I love that analogy of giving recipes to people who are afraid to go into the kitchen because I mean, it, it's such an important skill set. And yet I think that that sort of framework that the fact that the fear and anxiety of these tough situations holds people back from ever even kind of coming to the table in the first place is a tremendously common problem, I think, obviously with negotiation, but really, if you look at it in a, in a ton of different kind of endeavors. Absolutely. And and that's the thing. It, it really hit me hard because I would have these very nuanced episodes that introduce tactics and strategies that are powerful and evidence-based, but then I realized it doesn't matter if people are unwilling or unable to use them in the heat of battle. And so when you think about it psychologically, when somebody's engaged in a difficult conversation and they are feeling emotional about the situation, they're afraid, there's a lot of activity going on in in the limbic system. And what we found is that when there is a significant amount of activity in one brain structure, it takes away energy from the other structures. So for example, the prefrontal cortex, where we have logical reasoning, is not as engaged. And so what we're finding in addition to that is that when you're stressed out in these conversations, your body is going to be filled with cortisol, the stress hormone, which clouds your judgment and ability to think clearly. So at the time when we need to be at our best cognitively, we're inhibited significantly. And so that's why it forced me to realize we need to address these foundational issues of fear and anxiety. And when it comes to the strategies that we use during the conversations, we need to simplify it and give people a tool that they would actually be able to use easily in the midst of a conflict. So let's dig into that. How do you sort of think about dealing with that fear and anxiety that often kind of comes up around conflict and negotiation and and, and having difficult conversations? As a young Kwame, (laughs) I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And one of the things that I really enjoyed learning more about was the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And so it's a really action-oriented, hands-on approach to moving forward when it comes to pushing through phobias, anxiety, fears, those type of things. And so it forced me, when it came to negotiation and working with people and teaching them how to be better at conflict, it forced me to realize that I can use this same kind of approach when it comes to making people more confident and feel less fear and stress during the conversations. And so on my podcast and in these sessions that I do when I go and travel the country and do these conflict management and negotiation seminars, I encourage people to do what what I call rejection therapy where they actually seek rejection. And so it's mundane, everyday situations where you take the opportunity to ask for what you want to kind of fabricate that fear of rejection because that's one of the biggest fears that people have. And what you do is slowly you become desensitized to it. And so it's taken from the idea of exposure therapy. So for instance, if you're afraid of spiders and you have a therapist that's working with you, what they would do is they would first have you look at a picture of a spider from a distance and then slowly bring the image of the spider closer. And then maybe have you see a real spider from a distance and then have you bring the real spider closer. And these are in in increasing, these are in separate sessions. And then eventually you get to the point where you might be able to sit in the same room with your heart rate not being too excessively elevated and then maybe even to the point where you could touch it. And so I want to want people to be intentional about exposing themselves to these difficult conversations because it's going to make you stronger for the next one and their opportunities to practice these techniques that we teach on the podcast and the framework that I introduce in the book. It's such a great tool sort of toolkit. And, you know, we've actually had Jia Jang, who had a TED Talk that sort of really popularized rejection therapy on the show. And so we'll throw that episode in the show notes. But I, I couldn't agree more that 
you know, intentionally kind of facing your fears, getting uncomfortable is such a powerful framework and powerful method for building those skill sets of kind of mental toughness and emotional resilience, right? And we we kind of talk about what we sort of call the sphere of discomfort, which is basically this idea that the options and opportunities available to you are only as big or as good as your ability to sort of get uncomfortable. And the more you do something, like the first time you do anything, it's kind of scary and new and frightening. And then if you know the 50th time you do it, you're kind of getting the hang of it. The thousandth time you do it, you're practically bored, right? And so that's it's such a relevant and useful tool for building up that emotional skill set. So I think it's a really good strategy. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned him because he, I, I was just finishing up a chapter in a book called Confidence, and there is almost an entire page dedicated <laughs> to explaining that TED Talk because it really forced me to realize like this is something that I could overcome. And I remember when I was younger and I discovered that TED Talk, I was working at a nonprofit Institute. And one of the things that they did was it, they offered professional development training and job opportunities for youth that were disadvantaged. And so, for example, you needed to be a below a certain level of income in order to participate in the program. So for a family of four, it was about $56,000. And if you had one penny more, then you were poor, but not poor enough to take advantage of the program. And so what we had to do as intern coordinators was to have those difficult conversations with people and let them know that even though they were so excited to take advantage of this opportunity, they didn't meet the income requirements. And it would break our hearts. It would break their hearts. It was incredibly difficult. But after watching that TED Talk, what I did is I told my colleagues, listen, Everybody that you have to reject for this particular reason, give them to me. I'll have that difficult conversation and I will do it. And this was one of the hardest things to this day, still one of the hardest things I ever did. But I forced myself to do it just so I could become a little bit more comfortable. Did I ever become fully comfortable? No, but it, I was at least comfortable enough to take committed action. And I, I carry that strength with me now, even today. Wow, what a great example of how to really kind of concretely implement that in your life and sort of step up to the plate. You know, I'm sure it wasn't hard to convince those people to give you the difficult conversations, right? No, they were very happy. <laughs> but I mean, it, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of firing people too, right? Like the first time you fire somebody, it's really scary and kind of awkward. And then, you know, by the time you, I don't know how many people are listening, I fired a lot of people, but I fired a fair amount of people over the course of my career. And like the the more you do it, the more you realize that, it's actually almost like cathartic and, and can be really sort of healthy to fire somebody once you realize that there's a misalignment. But to get to that place, you have to kind of soldier through all these really uncomfortable conversations to get to sort of the position where you have a really healthy perspective. And, you know, I mean, I've been in situations where we had to fire a longtime employee and they literally like thanked us and were like so grateful and happy and like felt like they were sort of being free to pursue this new opportunity. But without the developing that building that kind of muscle and getting in those difficult conversations, you're never able to really truly do that. Absolutely. And I, I love the term that you used where you said soldiering through. Um, right now, I'm reading a book on neuroplasticity, and it's about how you can actually change your brain structures and the wiring of your neurons through action and consistent action. And I'm realizing now when it comes to these difficult conversations and soldiering through, like you said, and consistently make, putting yourself in the position to have these conversations, you're actually changing 
your brain. There are different connections because as they say, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so these connections become stronger. And so that's why it gets easier over time because your brain is actually changing. So it's a mental workout. It's, it's like another body part. The mechanics of it and the structure can change based on the experiences that you put in front of your brain. I think that's a great way to phrase it, too, is a mental workout, right? These kind of rejection challenges or difficult conversation challenges are a great way to work out your brain, work out that skill set so that when you step up to the table at a really kind of tense, high stakes negotiation, you're much more comfortable and much more confident. Absolutely. And the thing is, too, the, the way I look at this is like a sports psychologist. When you look at sports psychology, when it comes to athletes, they realize that, of course, the athletes need to have a firm physical foundation. And then they also have a firm technical foundation. But what they're realizing more and more is that we need to have a firm psychological foundation, too. And I think it's it kind of takes people off guard when I go into the, the companies and the, I'm working with their negotiation teams or their HR teams. And I start off by talking about these things that most people would consider soft, <laughs> talking about emotions and psychology. But then as we go through the process, they realize, wow, this is important. It's important because it not only helps me to understand myself on a deeper level, but it also helps me to understand others on a deeper level. And a lot of times during these conversations, because the other person isn't as emotionally aware. We find ourselves having to ask questions in unique ways, in strategic ways, to lead them from a specific mental state that is unproductive to a place where they can actually process the high-level information and arguments that we're, we're giving to them. So this might be a little bit of a sidetrack, but I want to dig into that sort of skill set as well, because I think that's something that has been really impactful for me. And, you know, how do you think about kind of using questions and using the right sort of framing to get somebody out of, you know, sort of a, a hole that they've trapped themselves in from, from a positional standpoint or kind of an emotional state that's really unproductive for what you're sort of trying to negotiate towards. Yeah, I, th I have a story for this that, that could help. So I am the father of an almost three-year-old. So every morning I'm in hostile negotiations. <laughs> and as I was trying to think through the, the steps of compassionate curiosity and how I could apply it to negotiation, this situation came up with Kai. And so... CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Every morning before we would go to school, he would fight me (laughs) on the same topic. My wife is a doctor, so she has to go in early. So I take him to daycare. And so what I would do is I would say, Kai, it's time to go to school. And he would say, I want mommy. And then I'd say, Kai, we need to go to school. Mommy's not here. No, I want mommy. Then he would cry. And so what he would do is he would start off the morning just telling me everybody he loved more than me. So first it would be, I want mommy. And then he would say, I want grandma. And then he would say, I want Uncle Kobe. And that was a bit hurtful because that's my brother who lives in a different city. And then, and this was the last straw for me. He said, I want Buxton. And Buxton is my brother's dog. And I realized I had a problem on my hands. And so I read this book called How to Talk So Children Would Listen and Listen So Children Would Talk. And what they said was you need to acknowledge emotions. And so I said, okay, well, I'll give it a try. Let's try it out. And so I, the next morning, I went up to Kai and I said, Kai, it's time to go to school. And he said, I want mommy. I don't want to go to school. I said, do you love mommy? Yeah, I love mommy. Do you wish mommy were here? Yeah, I wish she was here. How about you say, I love you, mommy. And he would say, I love you, mommy. Okay, Kai, you ready to brush your teeth? Yeah, I'm ready to brush my teeth. And so that's an example of where what he was requesting was substantive. He wanted his mother. That's a tangible request. But what he was really saying beneath the surface, it was an emotional request. He wanted me to acknowledge and respect the fact that at this moment, he was missing his mom. He was willing to accept the fact that she wasn't there, but he wasn't willing to accept the fact that I didn't respect it and acknowledge it. And so when it comes to our difficult conversations, a lot of times at the beginning, we need to take some time. And like I said, with compassionate curiosity, the first step is to acknowledge emotions. So we need to ask questions, dig deeply into that psychology to figure out what the emotional need is. And then we can move on to the second step, which is getting curious with compassion. And that's digging more into the substance of the negotiation. And then the third step is just joint problem solving, which is the fundamental of uh, collaborative negotiation. What a great example. And it's funny. Yeah, I I just added that book to my to read list one because I recently had a kid, but also because I think that the reality is that skill set is probably incredibly applicable to dealing with the vast majority of adults as well. 
Absolutely. And the thing is, Kai has really helped me to understand the psychology of it because, yeah, he's two years old, but that part of our brain doesn't go away. The prefrontal cortex evolves and grows on top of it. And so a lot of times what we see in these negotiations is that we are having, we're, we're frustrated because we're talking to somebody and we're making all of these logical points, but it's not getting through. And then we say, this person's crazy. They don't get it. It's not that the person's crazy. It's that you are talking to their inner two-year-old like they are a full-grown adult. <laughs> and so when you're w willing to understand that emotions still play a role in it, then you can speak to that two-year-old, help them grow through the conversation by acknowledging their emotions. And then once you're satisfied and re recognize that, okay, I can see now, it seems like they're getting it. It seems like they've reached a state of somewhat of, of equilibrium and sanity. Now I can put forward my arguments, but it doesn't make sense to make any points to a person who is not an emotional and psychological state that is prepared to receive it. So in the context of, of dealing with an adult who, you know, is maybe reacting emotionally, how would you think about kind of using that sort of skill set of, of acknowledging emotion? Like, what does that look like? What you would do first is, well, state what the obvious is what I would say. So for instance, if a person seems frustrated, what I would do is I would, I would guess. I would say, but I wouldn't put it on them, but I would put it on me. Because a lot of times people don't feel comfortable if you say what they are feeling and put it in their terms because they don't really want to own it. But if you put it on you, then they could say, yeah, you're right. It feels a little bit less threatening to them. Because in the business world, a lot of times people live in this fiction where they believe that emotions shouldn't exist. So they don't feel comfortable sharing it. So what I would say is, listen, this, this is probably pretty frustrating for you. I know if I were in this situation, I would feel frustrated. And then I wait to see what they would say. And then if they can kind of confirm that, I would say, can you tell me more about what you've been experiencing or some of the challenges you've been experiencing? So I'm digging deeper into the issue that they're feeling and the emotions around that. And then once I feel satisfied based on their responses that they have, they've gotten that out of their system, then the questions that I ask would shift more towards substance, more towards problem solving. So what kind of things do you think we could do to make sure this doesn't happen in the, in the future? How can we help to make you feel more secure in this situation? Those type of questions. So we're transitioning from the acknowledging emotions to the compassionate curiosity stage where I'm asking questions. And the reason I call it compassionate curiosity is not because I want to really get into a nuanced conversation about what compassion is or isn't. It's meant to help you moderate your tone. Because a lot of times in these difficult conversations, even the best intentioned statements can be read as, as hostile simply because we are at a heightened emotional state. And so what I do is I ask people to think about somebody who is compassionate. About 90% of the people would say, Mother Teresa <laughs> is compassionate. And then I would say, okay, in this conversation, if Mother Teresa was here asking an open-ended question, how would she say it? And so it forces you to moderate your tone, approach it a little bit more in a softer manner, and approaching it in that non-threatening way allows the person to feel more comfortable sharing more information. I want to dig into the compassionate curiosity piece, but before we kind of go down that rabbit hole, uh, coming back to the idea of acknowledging emotions, is the goal of that sort of step in the framework to kind of help them process that emotion and get it out of their system? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Because if you don't, it will still fester underneath the surface. And the thing is, a lot of times with these emotions, they're hidden under a veil of professionalism, where they recognize there are certain things they can and cannot say, they can and cannot do. And so they simply won't do those, not because they don't want to, but because they know that they can't. And so they will hide those emotions from you. And so I really go out of my way to make sure that I explore that emotional side before I get into this. And remember, this is me as a as a business attorney who negotiates with opposing counsel as a mediator who is in the middle of these difficult, long, hour-long, hours-long mediations between attorneys on opposing sides. And I use this successfully in, in those situations too. And and I, that's why I wanted to create a framework that could be utilized in every type of situation. And we can see how it could be utilized in these social interactions we have with our friends and all the way up to the highest level negotiations we have within our businesses. Hey, everyone. I wanted to take a quick second and tell you about this episode's incredible sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant is a math and science enrichment learning platform. Brilliant is unique in that it teaches you these concepts through solving fascinating and challenging problems. We'll be featuring a new sample problem to our email subscribers every week as part of Brilliant's support for the show, so be sure to check those out. Listeners have loved solving these sample problems in the past, and Brilliant's problems feature all kinds of cool scenarios from poker games to World War II airplanes. In fact, Brilliant explores many topics, including computer science, probability, machine learning, physics, and much more. It's a great way to learn and an addictive, interactive experience that's enjoyed by millions of students, professionals, and enthusiasts around the world. You can get started today by going to brilliant.org slash science of success for free. When you visit our link for a limited time, you'll also get 20% off of an annual subscription when you sign up just for being a science of success listener. Brian also has these amazing principles of learning, which showcase their passion and dedication to teach people these vitally important STEM skills. One of them is cultivating curiosity. From world champions to creative geniuses like Leonardo da Vinci, curiosity is such an important skill. Another great learning principle from Brilliant is that math and science learning should be community-driven. Their incredibly engaged community is a great resource for chatting, learning, and connecting when you're stuck or can't solve one of their thought-provoking puzzles. Check out some of the amazing stuff going on at Brilliant. Right now, you can go to brilliant.org slash science of success to get started absolutely for free and save 20% off your annual subscription just for being a science of success subscriber. Once again, that's brilliant.org slash science of success for some incredible math and science learning. Be sure to check it out. Brilliant's been an incredible sponsor of the show for a long time. So check out what they're working on. It's really cool stuff. So let's dig into kind of the the compassionate curiosity piece and explore that a little bit more. Once you've identified the the kind of emotion that they're struggling with, how do you did you sort of frame the questions you're asking around how do you help them solve that emotion or how do you kind of transition that into from sort of the emotional to kind of more substantive and, and issue-based things? Yeah. So what we do is, like I said, once we're satisfied there, we transition into the substance and issues. And so typically before these conversations, especially in the business world, I'd like to set an agenda. And so I would have it so that Maybe not on the agenda. It doesn't say emotional issues, number one. (laughs) It'll talk about concerns and problems. And so really one of the easiest ways to do this is 
to change the tense. So when we're dealing with those emotional issues, most likely those issues originate from things that happened in the past. So I'm doing a fact-finding endeavor based on things that happened in the past and their perception of those things. And then when I shift more toward the substance, the compassionate curiosity stage, this is where I am looking into the future. Because most of the time, almost all the time when we're having these conversations, they're going to be with people with whom we're going to have an ongoing relationship in some capacity. And so I want to kind of outline what the future of the relationship could look like. So at this stage, what I'm doing is I'm changing the tense to focus on the future to outline the parameters of what our, our relationship could look like going forward and things that we would like to avoid going forward. And then once I feel as though I've had enough I've gotten enough information, then I'm going to start moving into the problem solving, but not until I feel as though I have a, a solid lay of the land when it comes to the, these conversations. So in essence, it's kind of figuring out, you know, hey, if I was in your situation, I'd feel really frustrated, kind of, et cetera, get that out. And then you say, so what can we do, you know, in the future to help you feel, to help you not be frustrated? Or would you, would you couch it specifically in terms of their emotions? Or would you kind of frame it more, more broadly than that? What I'd suggest doing at this stage is using something that I call the funnel technique, where the beginning of my, my questions, they start off incredibly broad. And then as I start to get a better idea of where we're, we're going, where they want to go and where I want to go, the questions will become more and more narrow. So for instance, a lot of times in, in these mediations, even though I've read the whole case file, I've talked to the opposing counsel and all the, the, these things, I would talk to one of the parties. And after I feel as though I've explored that emotional side, I'd say, so what are you looking for? And think about how incredibly broad that question is, especially in the case of litigation, where in their complaint, they need to say to a specific dollar amount exactly what they're looking for. So I know what they're, <laughs> what they're looking for, but I want to see where they take that question. Because within their answer, within their response to that incredibly broad question, they're going to signal to me what's important to them. And then based on that signal, that's where I'm going to start to get more and more specific. Uh, so I need to be able to follow their lead and kind of think on my toes. And, and that's why I'm so intentional about preparing beforehand. And so uh, last time I was on the show, I probably mentioned this, this free resource. But if you go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash guide, you can get a negotiation preparation guide, a conflict management guide, and a salary negotiation guide. So before all of these difficult conversations, I'm systematically preparing and thinking through what questions I could potentially ask on what specific topics, because it helps me to be a little bit more nimble, because it's really difficult to come up with high-level questions on the fly. And so I want to think through it as much as possible beforehand. I, I think that's so important. And, and I want to dig into preparation, actually, in a second. But you know, I, I think it's it, it kind of bears repeating too, and, and you've touched on this, is we started out this exploration with the example of a three-year-old, but the reality is you're using this same skill set in, in, you know, legal negotiations with other lawyers and board meetings and all kinds of really high-level business encounters. And so, and this is what part of the reason I'm digging so specifically into it is because I do the same thing. I use a lot of these tools and a lot of these skill sets and try to bring kind of emotional intelligence into you know, the communications I have with people, especially difficult communications. And I think it's really important for the audience to understand that point, that these are not just skill sets for dealing with people who are, you know, being kind of emotional, irrational, you know, children, this is really a, a really powerful framework that can apply across a huge array of, of interactions. 
Absolutely. And and that's the thing. These interactions, these business and social interactions, they're definitely going to be complex, but our approach to them does not need to be complicated. And that's why I really want to harp on the the use of this framework, because the beauty of a framework is that it tells us, it gives us a roadmap of where we can and should go, but it also tells us where we shouldn't go and helps us to avoid those red herrings, because those things could be more damaging than doing the right thing could be positive to the conversation. So I want to help people to understand what things they should ignore, as well as tell them what to do. And like I said, one of the things that people struggle with is not knowing what to say. And I think they don't know what to say because they see all of the moving parts. They see the complexity and they believe that a complex problem requires a complex solution. But that's not the case. If we stay focused on a simple framework, our outcomes in these negotiations will be significantly better. I like that phrase. The complex problem doesn't necessarily require a complex solution. But before, you know, I kind of let's come back and and get into the preparation piece now, because I think that's so critical. And I mean, if you look at a lot of the research around negotiation, you see the power of preparation. But but tell me a little bit more about why you think it's such a vital step of, of being a successful negotiator. Well, when it comes to the preparation, the one of the benefits beyond the substantive is the psychological and emotional. Once we feel as though we're familiar with the, the situation, it gives us more a, a greater sense of control. And when it comes to feelings of anxiety and frustration and fear, a lot of that for us as humans comes from the fact that we don't feel like we're in control. And it's often irrational. As you know, humans tend to be irrational. <laughs> and so, for example, more more people are afraid of flying than they are of driving, but we know statistically driving is one of the safest modes of transportation, especially relative when compared to driving. But why is it that we feel so much safer and so much more at ease behind the wheel of a car? It's because we have control. And so we're taking that principle of control and applying it to our negotiations by giving ourselves a framework and strategic, uh, systematic approach to the negotiation. And the more you know about the situation, the more control you will feel. And because you have a greater feeling of control, it'll diminish your level of anxiety, which will increase your level of performance when it actually comes to the conversation. And so what do you, I mean, obviously the the listeners can kind of go check out that guide and get some really kind of compelling and specific resources. But, you know, how much, let's say, How much preparation are you doing for an average negotiation? I know it varies a lot, but just as kind of a rule of thumb, how do you think about sort of how much prep work to do before you feel like you're ready to rock? Yeah, well, it depends on the the gravity of the situation. So for instance, I remember a few weeks ago, I had a presentation, an all-day negotiation training at a tech company in San Diego. And we had a preparation call, like a prep call, just getting things in order, knocking out the final details of the uh, of the engagement. And I was feeling really nervous. I was, I was like, wow, that's kind of strange. I'm nervous. And like I said, I still get nervous <laughs> for these conversations to this day. And then I ask myself, what would you tell a listener if a listener asks you what to do. And so I, I used the same guide that I had there and I walked through it. And after going through it for about five minutes, I felt good. I felt at ease and I felt good during the conversation when it did happen. Now compare that to a business negotiation. I remember one time I had a, a negotiation on behalf of a client and I prepared for that negotiation for 45 minutes using the guide. And then <laughs> the negotiation on the phone ended up being three minutes long. But 
it went really, really well, but it only went well because I put in those 45 minutes of, of preparation, you know? So it's, it's really, it's important to strike the balance. If you're, if you're one of those people who is a perfectionist, a lot of- One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Sometimes we think ourselves into inaction. And so if that's your issue, what I would do is I would set a time limit on the amount of time you prepare. Because sometimes we can get a little bit too deep into it and we, it really turns into a, a style of productive procrastination. And I don't want people to fall victim to that. So it, it's really a matter of degree. So I guess if I were to summarize that whole thing, I would give a very lawyer response and say, it depends. But I would always say that it requires preparation in some capacity. You know, I think the answer to many incredibly important questions is it depends. But uh, I'm also a former debater, so that probably shapes that in many ways. <laughs> so let's come back to kind of the third step, which we, we touched on a little bit, but this this kind of idea of joint problem solving or collaborative negotiation. Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, how do we sort of transition once we've started to kind of develop that compassionate curiosity? How do we move into that next phase and what does it really look like? So when it comes to this phase, what we're doing is really it's a joint problem solving situation joint brainstorming i should say and so I, the reason i use that term is that it, it's intentional because people typically aren't afraid of a brainstorming session <laughs> and so as as a lawyer when i am going into these conversations framing it is going to be important because lawyer versus lawyer whether it's lawyer versus lawyer or me versus an unrepresented party i typically don't use the word negotiation i don't say hey now to the next stage of this negotiation or i'm looking forward to our negotiation i would say chat or let's try to figure it out because that's really what it is i want them to be in that mindset to where once we get to this stage, we're working together to figure it out. So as far as the way that I actually transition, I would probably say something like this. I would say, well, I think I have a pretty good understanding of, of where, where you stand, and I hope I've given you an opportunity to understand where I stand. Here's what I think we could possibly do to work this out. And then I would give my proposal. And it's important to understand this, this important rule of thumb when it comes to when to make the first offer. Uh, the rule of thumb I use is when I know more than the other person or an equal amount to the other person, I will make the first offer. Because when you think about the impact of anchoring and the first offer advantage, I don't want to miss out on that opportunity. But if I'm in a situation where the other person knows substantially more than me, then I'll sit back and I'll wait for them to give me an offer because above all else, an offer is information. Once somebody makes an offer, they need to substantiate that offer with credible facts and objective criteria. So once that offer put is gone on, goes on the table, I'm going to ask more questions to learn more about it before I counter. And so that's how I would transition it. I would just try and put a bow on it and say, okay, this fact-finding part of it, I feel we've wrapped that up and I feel like we have a good understanding. So the person then, psychologically, they know that we're transitioning to the next phase. Um, it kind of puts a, a nice stamp on that part of the conversation and allows them to transition a little bit smoother to the next part of the conversation. So that, that brings up a really interesting point because I think there's kind of a, a common misconception that you should all you should never name a price or you should never kind of make your offer first. You should always wait for the other person. But if you really actually look at, I think there's actually studies that have been done and, and we'll try to find them and throw them in the show notes. But the anchoring is such a powerful phenomenon that there's actually a huge advantage to being the first person to make an offer in many contexts. 
a massive advantage. And and Matt, I'll, I'll quote a few studies here. I don't know the author of the studies, but here's here's one of my favorites because it just shows how <laughs> how weird humans can be psychologically. So here's the study. So they had people in two different groups, group A and group B, and they asked them similar but different questions. So the first group, they said, do you think Gandhi was greater than or less than 140 years old when he died. Now, the obvious answer is less than 140 years old. Duh, right? And so then they ask the other group, do you think Gandhi was greater than or less than 13 years of age when he died? And so, of course, the answer is greater than 13 years. Now, this is where it gets good. So they asked both parties, how old do you think Gandhi was when he died? And so group A, who was anchored with 140, guessed that he was 20 years older on average than the people in group B. And so this question was a nonsensical question, but it was the number that served as the reference point for the subsequent question. And so the first offer that goes on the table will have a disproportionate amount of persuasive power. And so that's why, if possible, you want to learn as much as possible for you to be able to put down a solid anchor. And so I say the the anchor needs to pass the because test. If you can't come up with a legitimate way bolstered by objective criteria to explain why you're asking for this, then the anchor is illegitimate. Because if you are too aggressive with the anchor, unreasonably so, it loses persuasive power and you lose credibility, which can hurt you throughout the rest of the negotiation. So use, use it carefully. Just make sure you'd be able to finish the statement, I'm asking for this because. You know, there's that reminds me of two things. One, there's another really funny study about anchoring that talks about like the power of sort of totally arbitrary information. I think they had people write their social security number on the top of like a survey. And then they priced out like how much they thought a bunch of everyday items cost, like a pencil, an apple, a coffee cup, that kind of stuff. And the people who had so it was the last two digits of your social security number. And the people whose last two digits ended in like 96 had much higher prices across the board for all these everyday objects than the people whose last two numbers of their social security number were like, you know, one, three or whatever. And we actually have a whole episode that we'll throw in the show notes too on, on anchoring that listeners who wanted to gain can like get a lot deeper on that stuff. But I also think there's a ton of psychology research that just even just saying because even if the reason is completely nonsensical in some cases, that actually can increase people's likelihood to sort of agree with whatever you're offering them as well. Absolutely. That's the classic copying machine <laughs> example, where the in the first group, they said, can I get in front of you? Can I cut in line? Because I need, they just asked if I could cut in front of you. And so the success rate was something like 60%. Sure, go in front of me. I don't care. But then when they said, hey, can I cut in front of you? Because I need to make some copies. The success rate went up to above 90%, which is crazy because everybody's in line at that time to make some copies. But people are, they're primed to focus on the word because, because they just assume that something legitimate is going to come after the because, and and thus it receives more persuasive value. The human mind is fascinating, but I guess that's why, uh, that's why we have a podcast, right? <laughs> exactly. So let's come back to kind of negotiating tactics and strategies. One of the other things that I know you, you've talked a lot about is the importance of timing and how you sort of time things within a negotiation. I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. 
Absolutely. Let me give a book reference on that. So after you read my book, of course, shameless plug, check out Presuasion by Robert Cialdini. So Cialdini, of course, is the person who created the book about a quarter century ago now called Influence, The Six uh, Principles of Influence. And now he came out with this most recent book about two years ago called Presuasion. And so it talks about the timing of your requests. And so he gave an example of reciprocity. So reciprocity is one of the six principles of influence, whereby if you ask some, if you give somebody something, it creates a level of psychological debt where they feel indebted to you and it makes it more likely for them to give you something in return. So in the case of a negotiation, that means if you give a concession, it makes it more likely for them to reciprocate that concession. Now, the most recent studies when it comes to timing demonstrates that it's almost like a bell curve with regard to the, the timing of the persuasion. So for instance, if I give you something, Matt, and then you say thank you, now we're at the top of the bell curve of persuasion. So at this time, if I were to ask for something in return, you are significantly more likely to give it to me than if I were to wait two days and then, of course, if I were to wait another week, it'll be less likely. And then if I wait a month, it'll be even less likely. And so there is a timing aspect to when we make these requests. So what I would suggest doing is, is reading that book and see what are those triggers that people respond to and then timing your, your requests accordingly. But I think that reciprocity example is a, is a perfect one because we, that's something that we see in the business world and in the, our everyday lives all the time. Yeah, Persuasion is a great book. We actually had Cialdini on the show right around the time that book came out. So we'll make sure to toss that one. There's going to be some pretty detailed show notes on this episode. Lots and lots <laughs> of book references and and things to check out. Nice. I'd love to, you know, another thing that that we actually touched on in our in our previous interview with you that I thought was really important that I think a lot of people miss about negotiation, I think Bear's kind of digging back into, is this idea that many people sort of think that negotiations are kind of a zero-sum game, right? And that my win is your loss, and that's not necessarily always the case. Exactly. And, and going back to what we said about collaborative negotiation, in order to be an effective collaborative negotiator, you, you have to reject that mentality. And I think that is one of the reasons why people are so afraid of negotiations. So they, they think it's a zero-sum game where my winning necessitates your losing, and then they assume the other person thinks the same way. And so they're really conflating conflict and combat where with combat, your goal is to uh, do destruction and <laughs> mutual damage. But conflict is a problem-solving endeavor, a fact-finding endeavor. You're, it's an opportunity to learn more. And so when you think about it in terms of, I want to satisfy my interests, I want to try to meet my needs, and then recognizing that you can help yourself to meet those needs by helping somebody else meet their needs. It makes this, this exercise a lot less threatening because, like I said, the way I think about it is we are two people coming to the table. You have needs. I have needs. Let's chat about them and figure out what we can do to make this relationship work. And I think it requires also a comfort level with recognizing that the deal might not work. And that's okay. And so one thing to keep in mind is that negotiation isn't the art of deal making. It's the art of deal discovery. And if we think it's deal making, we might try to push through or bully through a deal that really shouldn't happen because the, our interests simply don't align. And if they don't, it, it's completely okay. I found that to be incredibly true. And, and I think 
you know, one of the fundamental things that, that, that I, in any negotiation, it's all about trying to discover what does the other party want? Are, is there sort of an overlap of the two sort of Venn diagrams of your interests and theirs? And if there's enough sort of space in there, there's an opportunity to make a deal, but trying to sort of force a, a negotiation or a transaction or whatever with somebody where there's not enough kind of shared interest and mutual sort of win-win overlap is, is never going to work out in the long run. Absolutely. And and I think that's why I, I focus so much on letting people know that there are three pillars to negotiation or conflict. The first goal is to get more of what we want. The next pillar is to avoid things that we don't want. And then the last one is strengthening relationships. And now we might not be able to maximize pillar number one. We might not be able to maximize pillar number two. But in every negotiation, if we approach the other person with respect and engage in collaborative problem solving, we can still maximize pillar number three. So even if we don't get a deal, there's still value that can be achieved from both parties simply by strengthening the relationship through the process. So kind of coming back to the, this core framework and, and, and sort of summarizing it for the listeners, this, as you call it, the simple framework for approaching any conflict, whether it's in the boardroom or the dining room, is this idea of starting with you know, the acknowledgement of emotions moving to compassionate curiosity, and then ultimately engaging in a framework of joint problem solving. Exactly. Very cool. And I think, I mean, you know, I, I think it's a great framework. And, and I was really curious with kind of digging into some of the meat of the like specific, how do you phrase this question? How do you phrase that question? Because this is such a relevant skill set and something that I'm going to absolutely kind of integrate into my own negotiation skill sets. And, and, you know, I'm constantly negotiating with people. So, and as, as you said, really, the reality is we're, we're, Many, many com conversations that we have throughout our lives are negotiations, whether we realize it or not, right? Exactly. So it's, it's not a question about question of whether or not we are going to negotiate. It's a question of whether or not we're going to do it well. So we might as well learn these skills and get better at it because negotiation is not going anywhere. So what would one kind of piece of homework be as, as sort of an actionable step that listeners could take to concretely kind of implement some of the, the ideas and tactics we've talked about today? The first step, I guess I need to promote this book and say, uh, check out the book if you're interested, if you find any of this interesting. The next step would be to take action because I know I'm one of those people who can be very heady and stay up in my head when it comes to these types of uh, difficult situations in general, not just difficult conversations. And so what I would do is I would sit there, I'd learn more about it, I'd create a strategy, then I'd adjust that strategy, and then three months later, nothing has happened. <laughs> and so this really is an action-oriented approach. If you want to develop your confidence in these conflicts, you really need to take action. If you've listened to this point of the podcast, you are probably more equipped than most because most people don't take the time to learn these skills. So take action. You have enough knowledge and skill set just from this to take action in, in an improved fashion. So whenever you see the opportunity to engage in conflict, don't look at it as a threat or something to avoid. Look at it as something to approach. It's a signal that something's wrong with the relationship or there's something to investigate and use it as a tool to get more of what you want, avoid things you don't want and, and strengthen the relationships around you. And one more time for listeners who want to find you and the book and, and all of your work online, what is the best place for them to do that? Yeah. So since you all are podcast aficionados, check out the Negotiate Anything podcast. And the book is called Nobody Will Play With Me, How to Find Confidence in Conflict. All right, cool. That is a wrap. Lots and lots of actionable takeaways, lots and lots of things in the show notes and great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. 
We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're gonna get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.